All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hello and welcome back everybody to our 32nd episode. It's mid-April 2022 and PJM is hosting its first in-person meeting since March 2020. It's amazing to think about considering my expectation at the time was that we'd be back in the building within a few weeks. Resource adequacy and all of its various details and intertwined mechanics continue to dominate stakeholder discussions, wrapping in and around meeting topics like kudzu along a highway in the deep south. On the federal front, the war in Ukraine continues to hold the world's focus with energy security concerns and likely politics, forcing FERC to quickly change course on policies regarding approval of natural gas pipelines they only recently enacted in the first place. With that, I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, the 76ers offloaded deadweight Ben Simmons for supposed superstar James Harden and somehow lost ground in the NBA standings, stumbling to the playoffs as the four seed in the East, all while Joel Embiid again is a main contender for league MVP. Glenn, is this officially another year of Embiid's prime wasted? Wow. Way, way to lead with a softball. Yeah, word. yeah, Jeez, yeah. I'm, I'm coming in hard today. <laughs> Uh, happy April uh, <laughs> to all our listeners. Happy, happy and, uh, April. Yeah, no, nah, I, I mean, I, I think the NBA playoffs are going to be great this year. Um, and I think the Sixers are right in the mix. And the Sixers have the tools. Um, whether they can get it done down the stretch, we'll find out. But um, we'll see. Hope of spring's eternal. Let's talk more I, about it on the May and the oh, June podcast. There, That's there, my yeah, you think? You think we'll still be talking about it in June? Uh, it's uh, very optimistic, Glenn. This is why you were the chairman at the... At the uh, Pennsylvania PUC. Okay, well, with that, we're very excited about this month's guest. Jesse Jenkins is an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering in the Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment at Princeton University and leads the Princeton Zero Lab. Jesse has a PhD and master's degree from MIT and did his undergrad in computer science at the University of Oregon. The Zero Lab works on improving optimization-based modeling and tools and methods to understand energy systems to provide insights and investment and policy recommendations in the energy sector. In March, the Zero Lab team produced a pathway to 100% carbon-free electricity in New Jersey that takes into account a complexity of factors, including electricity grid constraints, state policy goals, and technological realities. Among other things, the analysis found that 100% carbon-free electricity is feasible while maintaining reliability and with reductions in bulk electricity supply costs, but that it entails a significant increase in New Jersey's dependence on imported electricity, running counter to the state's current policy approach prioritizing in-state and distributed generation, and that if more states in the region pursue parallel deep decarbonization goals, the costs of reaching 100% carbon-free electricity in New Jersey increase by as much as 20% in 2050. Dr. Jenkins, with that as preface, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very excited to have you uh, because this kind of puts numbers to some of the things. So, so quantifying some of the qualitative stuff that we've all talked about or that we've all sort of thought. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, we really were hoping to sort of put some finer numbers and sense of the trade-offs uh, on the table for the state as we figure out how to go from our current you know, legislative policies, which will take us through to 2030, um, on uh, beyond that to the path to 100% carbon-free electricity, which the governor, uh, Governor Murphy is committed to via executive order, but we um, still need you know, follow-on legislation and regulation to, to make a reality. So we're hoping that this report will um, inform the development of additional policy that can take us all the way on that path to 100% carbon-free. Yeah, so let, let's talk about demand first. You anticipate demand increasing significantly up to 85% at peak. That's a, that's a pretty huge jump. Is that the result of implementing an electrify everything strategy? And what does that mean for state policies? Yeah, that's right. So in this study, we looked at three different uh, policy scenarios. The first is a current policies case where we just assume that you know, current policies that are on the books, they're legislated or have been implemented by, say, the Board of Public Utilities or other state agencies. And in that case, we are you know, fairly 
pessimistic about the scale of electrification. The state doesn't really have a robust regime in place for policy to support heating electrification, for example. And while we would expect more electric vehicles than on the road today, um, that does stop short of the kind of full electrification strategy you would expect in a, you know, a, a policy environment trying to get to uh, deep reductions in economy-wide or statewide emissions. And so we also ran a stated policies case, which effectively takes um, executive orders or legislated goals that don't have, um, you know, backup in the form of concrete legislation or rules. And that includes the state's goal of reducing emissions 80% below 2005 levels across all statewide emissions. And as study after study uh, on pathways to deeply decarbonize the energy system shows, uh, electrifying transportation and heating are two pretty pivotal pieces of any cost-effective strategy to get there. And so we don't assume 100% electrification, but uh, it, we base these scenarios off of the high electrification or E-plus strategy that we uh, put together for the Net Zero America study, which is another big study that we did at Princeton here. It came out at the end of 2020. It looked at how to get the whole country to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And we took the numbers from that as far as the amount of heat pumps that would be used in buildings, the amount of electric vehicles that would hit the roads, and we use that demand profile for our stated policy scenario in, for New Jersey. As you said, that drives a huge amount of demand uh, for electricity. We, we come out of an era of basically flat demand for the last couple decades um, as energy efficiency has basically kept pace with growing demand for energy services into an environment uh, of rapid electricity demand growth, particularly after 2030, as some of the sort of nonlinear adoption trends for EVs and heat pumps uh, takes off. Uh, and we get the larger turnover of the building and vehicle stock. So yeah, a lot to prepare for. We've got to not only decarbonize our grid, but also prepare to make it a lot bigger to uh, power, to, to make it a lot bigger to power all of those, uh, all of those electric homes and electric vehicles with uh, clean electricity. Yeah, and that's really a fascinating point. Fascinating point. And as you pointed out, for the last couple of decades, demand has largely been flat. I think PJM bakes in one to two percent a year of growth. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, yes, it has been flat. You know, and yes, we're talking about rapid decarbonization. But as your your study points out, we're talking about rapid electrification as well. And you know, whether the system's prepared to absorb these tremendous increases, like uh, honestly, I'm not sure we've ever seen before is going to be something that I think as this story plays out is going to be more and more fascinating. Um, the other fascinating part of this study is, uh, and I never thought about this, but when I saw it, I'm like, huh, it kind of makes sense. You know, at least as it goes, as far as PJM goes, you're predicting a shift from a system that peaks on summer afternoons, you know, when the air conditioners are running full out um, to a system that's peaking on winter mornings you know, when the sun's down, but buildings need heat and, uh, and cars need charging. And again, that's a pretty radical shift from a planning, you know, planning assumption for PJM. Can you talk a little bit about what's driving PJM from a summer afternoon peaking system to a winter early morning peaking system? Because I think, you know, that is a, a really, really important finding. Yeah, it's a big shift to prepare for. And that's one of the things we wanted to make uh, clear in the study. Uh, so electrification means more demand for electricity, up to 70% increase in total electricity sales and an 85% increase in the peak demand. But it also means a, a dramatic shift in the patterns of electricity consumption. The summer afternoon demand does grow in our modeling. Um, yeah, as we have, you know, a, a larger state population, uh, more GDP, you know, more economic activity in the state, the demand on summer afternoons does increase, but nowhere near as much as it increases in the winter. And that's driven by the shift from gas heating to electric heating and uh, the increased demand from electric vehicles that many of which will be charging overnight uh, at homes in order to prepare for the commute the following morning. And so the combination of uh, electric heating and electric vehicle charging will drive up the winter demand, particularly overnight demand when it's the coldest and when many vehicles are charging at home uh, by a to a much greater degree or much faster than the summer peak grows. So we shift from a period of late afternoon summer peaks uh, to winter overnight or late morning, early morning peaks. Um, driven by that heating and electric vehicle demand. And it, the demand for heating is even more sensitive to temperature. You know, you think about your thermostat is 70 degrees in the summer, we might have a 90 degree day or 95 degree day. So you're trying to, you know, cool about 25 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. In the winter, you might get temperatures down into the teens. 
And so there you're trying to cool or trying to heat up your home, maybe even 60 degrees uh, Fahrenheit up to the you know set point on your thermostat. And so it's just a much bigger demand for your heat pump to pull that heat into your, into your home uh, than it is to pull the heat out of the house in the summer for air conditioning load. And so it, it just drives up the demand faster than the summer peak. So that has a big implication for how we plan for the system. Um, it is really a dual peaking system, right? So that summer peak doesn't go away. It's just it's smaller than the winter peak. And so the value of different resources is going to shift as well. The most salient one is probably the value of solar PV, which during you know summer days right now is a very helpful resource at meeting you know peak summer afternoon demand. Uh, but it's not going to do much in January at, you know, 2 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning. Right. Um, and so you need a, you know, a, a diverse mix of resources that can meet our needs throughout the year. Well, let's talk about that. So, I mean, I mean, you're basically saying at, at PJM when it's at its peak, solar is not going to be a very viable resource. I mean, what's going to make up the difference then in, in your mind? So in our modeling, we actually see an increase in the installed capacity of natural gas fired generators not an increase in natural gas generation, I want to stress, an increase in installed capacity. And that is driven pr predominantly by this uh, heating electrification or this um, winter electrification peak, uh, because we do need to be able to meet those peaks in consumption reliably with firm generation, uh, a combination of storage and you know, demand flexibility as well that helps. So we need reliable capacity that can run in the winter when the solar is not contributing much, when even potentially the wind output is low. Uh, and since that peak is much higher, we do need to maintain the existing installed capacity of natural gas power plants uh, and potentially expand them. In fact, in New Jersey, in terms of installed capacity, we see that capacity go up in all of our scenarios to varying degrees. The best way to minimize that is to preserve the existing nuclear plants in New Jersey, which will provide that you know, continued power in the wintertime. And so that, that helps. If we retire the nuclear fleet as well by 2050, then we'll need even more gas-fired capacity. Now, we don't burn as much gas over time, again, especially if you keep the existing nuclear plants as a foundation to add new clean electricity on top of. The amount of gas burn steadily declines over the years, even as we see more gas capacity installed. And that's important because all the things that are harmful or are concerning about natural gas consumption, whether that's local air pollution or CO2 emissions or the upstream impacts of methane leakage or fracking, you know, demand for fracking to, to produce additional gas, all that scales with the amount of gas we consume in power plants, not the total capacity. So this, you know, increase in capacity, declining utilization um, is, you know, the, what our modeling pretty reliably shows is the, the most uh, cost-effective way to meet our demand uh, at peak times while steadily reducing the environmental impact of the system. By 2050, if we are going to meet 100% carbon-free electricity rule, then clearly we can't be burning any natural gas in that context, right? It's 100% carbon-free, um, or at least net carbon-free. Um, and so the, depending on how the, you know, the legislation that would ultimately come from this is implemented, it may be that we can burn gas and offset it with negative emissions like carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere. But assuming that's not the case, we would need to convert our gas fleet to run on some kind of zero carbon fuel. And that's how we modeled it in our, in our study, basically a generic zero carbon fuel. All our model needs to know is the emissions rate and the heat of the, the price per MMBTU or per, you know, per heat content. Um, and so we were sort of agnostic about what actually is going into the generators, but there's a range of all options that could ultimately be used. The most obvious is probably hydrogen combustion where hydrogen itself is a carbon-free fuel. It doesn't have any carbon in it. And so when you combust it, it doesn't produce any CO2. And as long as the hydrogen is produced from carbon-free sources like clean electricity uh, or uh, natural gas with very high carbon capture rates uh, or biomass gasification with carbon capture, it could be a zero carbon or even negative carbon fuel from a life cycle perspective. The other option would be to convert that hydrogen with some CO2 uh, from biomass or from the atmosphere that, you know, was, is carbon neutral into synthetic methane, which we could then burn in a conventional gas turbine. Using hydrogen will at 100% blend will probably require converting over the gas fleet to uh, new combustors and turbines that can run on 100% hydrogen. And again, that's how we modeled it in our, we modeled a, a replacement cost that required some capital expenditure to do that. But even with that capital expenditure, and even with very high cost for the fuel, I think we modeled at 13 or $14 per MMBTU, 
uh, versus, you know, four or so for natural gas today. The model still reliably chooses to switch the fleet over to zero carbon fuel and just run it at a very low utilization rate, uh, about a four or 5% annual capacity factor. So really just using it when we need it, when the wind and solar output is low and the demand is high enough that we have to fire up those, um, those zero carbon fueled power plants. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, we've been saying that on the show for, for a little while now. I mean, there's, there's, there's a subset of resources in PJM that are definitely going to be needed, um, but they're just not going to run a lot. And, but when, when they're needed, they're going to be really needed because that's going to be the difference between keeping the lights on and uh, having them go out. That's right. In, in our research, we call them firm low carbon resources or clean firm technologies. We did, I participated in another study that looked at California's path to 100% carbon free that we did after the um, SB 100 law was passed there, which was really the first major state uh, commitment to 100% clean electricity. Um, that was a, a joint effort with the Environmental Defense Fund, Clean Air Task Force, um, and modelers at Stanford and the consulting group E3. And in that study, we looked at a really wide range of different clean firm technologies because across the West, we have a lot more options. You can do advanced geothermal energy. It's a lot more locations in California to do carbon capture and storage. You could potentially even do advanced nuclear, uh, not in the state of California under current law, but near you know, neighboring states potentially and import it. For New Jersey, we didn't focus so much on exploring the full range of clean firm technologies because we don't have as favorable a set of options here. Advanced nuclear might be another option if it's affordable enough. Um, carbon capture is an option across PJM, but generally uh, it's going to be more cost effective in the western portion of the region, closer to basins to store CO2 um, or pipelines to the Gulf Coast where there's a lot of storage potential. So for New Jersey itself, in-state generation, there's just not as many options um, and it's, you know, sort of advanced nuclear or some kind of zero carbon fuel are the most likely. There is some potential to store CO2 um, offshore under, you know, under the ocean, um, uh, the ocean floor, but that is uh, at this point not a demonstrated storage capacity. So again, more limited set within New Jersey, a broader range of clean firm options are available across PJM. Uh, and we should expect a mix of those resources to develop, including zero carbon gases, but others as well. New Jersey is an interesting choice to focus on um, because of the all the different nuances and factors that go on there. Uh, was that chosen specifically for any? I mean, obviously, uh, Princeton is in New Jersey, so that makes some sense geographically. But was there any other particular reasons why you chose to specifically focus on New Jersey with the study? Yeah, the main reason was because that's it's our home state, and we want yeah. our research here at Zero Lab to be supportive of state decision making. Uh, so, you know, we would like to be an in-state resource for stakeholders and decision makers and policymakers here. And so this study was an opportunity to build out the detailed model of New Jersey and the PJM system and our neighbors that we can now use on an ongoing basis to you know, answer questions and you know, run what ifs and provide decision support for the state um, as part of our focus here in service of the country at Princeton, right, to provide research that is valuable and can improve decision making across the state and, and the country. So we've, you know, we have looked at other states as well. I mentioned we looked at California in the past. We, we are about to come out with a study later this uh, late spring, early summer that looks at rapid decarbonization in PJM as a whole. Okay. using the same model setup um, that looks at how quickly we can cut emissions by 2030. Uh, and, you know, we'll likely do others as well. Um, and so this is just a great uh, opportunity to build out a detailed model that can now be a test bed for other, you know, research and questions um, mm -hmm. related to the region and the state. Well, plus, Jesse has a vested interest in keeping his electricity bill low. So. <laughs> That's true, too. I guess maybe I should declare my conflict of interest. <laughs> There's that. And then I should also say the other thing that, that spawned this was the, um, you know, the state's energy master plan, which came out in, uh, I think, early 2020 as well. Uh, which was prompted by Governor Murphy's executive orders to, to not just, you know, set this goal, but to prompt a, a pretty robust statewide planning effort to figure out how to get there. That was, you know, finalizing at the time that we kicked off this study, largely as an independent effort to sort of check some of the blind spots potentially in the state planning study and also mm -hmm. to verify some of the findings uh, independently. And so, you know, we were inspired by the, the state energy master plan to take a close look at the options available for New Jersey and to evaluate some of the trade-offs and choices that we face. Yeah, I, I think when most people think about renewables and generation of the future, they're really optimistic about offshore wind. PJM in New Jersey are, are certainly very bullish on it, but your study indicates that it's one of the more costly forms of decarbonization. How do you suggest squaring those diverging interests? 
Well, both can be true at the same time. Unfortunately, New Jersey isn't Illinois or North Carolina or California. We don't have the land area and we don't have as abundant a renewable resource base as many other states. And so while I argue, we were arguing the study that we can do a lot more to develop utility scale solar in the state than we historically have here. Um, you know, the state policy has historically preferenced and supported to a much greater degree distributed solar over utility scale solar. There aren't a lot of other options. Um, you know, so, so what our study shows is that the cheapest thing New Jersey can do to get clean electricity is to import it from other states that have more abundant clean energy resources. So, you know, import solar from North Carolina or Virginia or import uh, wind from Pennsylvania or, um, or Indiana or Illinois. The next cheapest thing we can do is develop our utility scale solar resources in the state. And we think there's several gigawatts, you know, many gigawatts that could be built in the state, especially with a proactive uh, state effort to identify and work with communities and constituencies to identify locations where uh, utility scale solar would be met with uh, open arms instead of opposition. Um, you know, I think we can do that at a statewide level and not just rely on individual private developers to propose projects and run into, you know, local opposition or whatever else may rear its ugly head. Um, and then the next cheapest thing we can do is keep the existing nuclear plants operating. That's usually about the same order of magnitude cost as the uh, utility scale solar. After that, which is not enough to get us all the way to carbon free, unless we're willing to import a lot from out of state, up to 65% in our modeling of New Jersey's electricity would be imported at the lowest cost strategy. Our only other options in state then are distributed solar and offshore wind, both of which are a good step change more expensive than utility scale solar imports or in-state nuclear. So that was really the kind of key takeaway from the study is there's sort of two classes of options. The affordable ones are importing electricity, clean electricity from PJM, developing utility scale solar and maintaining the existing nuclear plants. Then at a you know, roughly order of magnitude higher cost is offshore wind and distributed solar, which of course are the two resources that have the greatest public support uh, from the state policy at the moment. Uh, you mentioned offshore wind, obviously there's, there's higher costs associated with that. Distributed solar obviously doesn't need the, uh, the transmission infrastructure to support it, but offshore wind does, as well as the imports would need additional transmission infrastructure. How did, how did you think about investments that would be required in those spaces as you were evaluating the overall uh, financial efficacy of, of these approaches? Yeah, so that's the beauty of running an optimization model like we do is we just get to put all those costs and options in and then let the model find the lowest cost solution. And so we embed uh, transmission costs in kind of two ways. One is within each of the model regions that we looked at which are, you know, have a finer spatial detail around New Jersey and get a little more aggregated the further away you go. Um, we implicitly include the cost of interconnection within each zone uh, to the lines or to the major uh, uh, demand centers. We did that based on a pretty detailed geospatial analysis of the cost of connecting these sites up to, um, to centers of, you know, demand centers within each region. But then we also explicitly model expansion of interconnection between the model zones. So that includes in, uh, additional transmission from the New Jersey coastal region to the inland uh, areas where the demand is greatest into the rest of PJM, including the Pico Territory, Western MAC region, uh, and New York State, and then you know, further afield from there as well. And so the modeling shows that you, know, you get a lot of transmission expansion in all the cases, but um, there's sort of two big drivers of that. One is the need to import more electricity from out of state in the least cost strategy uh, in particular, but even in the others where it, it, trade with the, other, with the rest of PJM is helpful. And there we see the need for a significant expansion of interties uh, between New Jersey and all of our neighboring regions in both PJM and New York. And then the other driver is the need to transmit wind from the coast into the demand centers. And so that uh, we see the transmission system from the coast to inland roughly tripling before the end of 2030. So right away, just to start importing all of the wind, the seven and a half gigawatts that we're starting to build. Some of that could make landfall further north in the New Jersey Bight and, you know, into like Port Elizabeth or other areas in the north as a way to avoid the cross-country expansion of transmission that we modeled. That would be more expensive, but potentially less uh, opposition. In some way or another, we need to get the power from the coast to where New Jerseyans mostly live, which is in the center and north of the state. And we have limited transmission capacity right now from the coast 
inland. Largely, it's just what used to bring power from Oyster Creek um, sure. to the nuclear power station that closed. So once that's tapped out, and that was, you know, what, 700 megawatts-ish, then any additional imports were probably going to need to upgrade transmission. Now, adding, you know, power from out of state also requires a lot of transmission, right, to get into western or southern portions of PJM. But the cost difference between onshore wind and offshore wind is enough that even if you have to build a very long transmission line, it is much more cost effective to do that if what you're just trying to do is minimize cost. The -hmm. challenge, of course, is actually building transmission lines in the real world is a lot harder than building them in our model. And so, you know, the reality is more, can you build the line at all? Uh, If you can, it's cost effective. If you can, it doesn't really matter what it costs. Uh, And so that might drive the need for more in-state development as well if you just can't expand transmission across PJM, you know, at sort of the regional scale as much as our modeling might want to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, how long did it take to build that Susquehanna Roseland line? I mean, that was, I mean, that that was at least a decade in the making. Yeah. And that's going to be a persistent problem for everyone. If we care about decarbonization, you know, the net zero America study, again, that looked at the whole country estimated, we might need to expand us transmission capacity by as much as 60% just by 2030 and roughly triple it by 2050. So that means, you know, the entirety of our grid built again twice wow. <laughs> over the next 30, three decades. Now, you know, there are some ways to reduce that a little bit. You can cut that in half. If we depend more on nuclear and gas with carbon capture and less on renewables, we'd still have a lot more renewables in that scenario, but not as much as the lowest cost strategy. Or we can also co-locate storage with wind and solar sites to reduce the scale of interconnection they need, you know, by maybe 20%. But still, it's a, it's a ton of new transmission that we will need. And that, again, is driven by electrification, which is going to drive up demand, but also by the need to tap into the best wind and solar resources, particularly wind resources across the country, um, because wind resource quality varies a lot more than solar. So, you know, you want to do cost-effective wind, you need transmission to tap into it and bring it to where the demand is. In studies in general, you know, um, whenever you see uh, studies like this, a certain amount of what, what I'll call fan service to steal a phrase from like pop culture that's expected with any path to whatever plan that people who are proponents of that will, you know, they'll want to see something in there that, that they, that they uh, agree with. Did you receive any pressure or criticism for not being more supportive of offshore wind and dismissive of gas fire generation? And, and was that sort of intellectual honesty, a, a founding principle or, or how, how did that all come about? Yeah, we haven't gotten a lot of pushback yet. I mean, this report's not that widely known, I would imagine. Um, <laughs> we're, but, doing our, uh, we're doing our best for you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Until I now. Imagine... <laughs> yeah, until now, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I imagine we will get more. I mean, we are critical. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we're critical. I say we are accurate about the costs of offshore wind and sure. distributed solar. Those have strong constituencies that I'm sure will take issue with some of that. You know, again, we do talk about the need to expand natural gas capacity, which I know is a, 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 a central concern with many. Uh, environmental groups as well as frontline communities that live near those power plants. That's why I wanted to take pains to really stress that it's natural gas consumption that we are worried about and uh, you know combustion and the all of the impacts that go along with that, not necessarily gas capacity. And so, you know, if we were just talking about building more gas plants with no other policy environment, I would say no, that's sending us in the wrong direction. But if we're talking about building new gas plants in the context of a statewide requirement to steadily reduce the amount of gas we can burn right, in the form of 100% carbon-free electricity law, then that's a very different context, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I think, and again, we also don't say don't develop offshore wind or don't develop utilities or distributed solar. We just say these are the costs associated with doing that and make sure that the benefits are consistent. You know, I have my views on the cost benefit, but, you know, I'm not in charge and other people will make different uh, you know, subjective evaluations about the relative costs and benefits. You know, the big ones for offshore wind and for distributed solar are local economic development arguments, right? The fact that we can create jobs in the state in installation and maintenance, particularly for the offshore industry. Every state in the in the Atlantic is competing to be the one that hosts the two or three major ports that'll get to service all of these, um, you know, offshore wind farms we're going to be building from Maine to, you know, South Carolina uh, someday. Not everybody's going to win that race, right? Some states are going to lose out and they're going to invest a lot of public policy support without, you know, the jobs necessarily. But, um, you know, New Jersey has a chance at that. So, you know, we have to balance those kinds of in-state, you know, economic development priorities, you know, the desire not to devote a large amount of our limited land area to utility scale solar, for example, you know, a desire not to send subsidies from state ratepayers 
out of state to wind farms in Indiana or some other, you know, yep. imports from PJM. So mm-hmm. all of those are important considerations. And it's why we weren't, you know, we didn't say do X or Y. We said, here are your options. Yeah. And, you know, even the in-state, high in-state requirement, you know, goals are not that expensive relative to today's electricity, right? It still could be comparable to or even lower cost than what we're paying for bulk electricity supply in New Jersey today. It just would be even more affordable if we relied more on utility solar and imports from out of the region um, going forward than we do in current policy support. So we're like sort of drifting into the political conversation, which is natural, right? I mean, it's great to take a terrific study like this and try to move it into the political discussion. And if I'm a if I'm a policymaker looking at this and, you know, let's say I don't have any unique local political agenda driving this, but I just, you know, I want to have reliable power, affordable power and decarbonized power. I mean, what I'm, I think a reasonable takeaway from this work is to be bearish on offshore wind and distributed solar and bullish on existing nuclear or new nuclear decarbonized natural gas and utility scale solar. Is that, is that a fair, if I'm a policymaker, are you, are you happy if I'm walking away with that conclusion? Yeah. If you're, if your broad concern is, as you stated, decarbonizing the, the state's electricity supply, maintaining reliability and having as affordable electricity as we can, then that's, that's what our model says is the way to go, right? That's the, you know, we right. run a least cost optimization model subject to those constraints. So it produces the outcome that you shared. I would say not not new nuclear. Um, the it doesn't build new nuclear, which we okay. give it as an option because you know who knows what new nuclear plants will cost. <laughs> None of them are even really on the market now until late 2020s. We included whatever NREL, the National Renewable Energy Labs, you know, default assumptions are about new nuclear, and it was too expensive to build that as opposed to keep the existing gas and use that for firm capacity. But you know, we don't know what the future will hold in that regard. But yeah, in terms of based on our assumptions, it it very clearly says that the least cost strategy is to import from outside of the state low cost renewable energy that meets about 65 you know, percent of the state's demand, about two thirds of our electricity, uh, maintain the existing nuclear fleet, which supplies today about a third, but with a growing demand, maybe only about 20 percent of our electricity and build out utility scale solar uh, to some degree, which is only marginally more expensive to do in New Jersey than elsewhere in the region. And that's it, you know, maintain the existing state commitments to offshore wind and an existing distributed solar that we've already made, but don't build any more than the seven and a half gigawatts of offshore wind we've committed to by 2035. You know, the model doesn't pick additional uh, offshore wind uh, except for under a narrower range of uh, future assumptions, um, you know, that line up all in the right way. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, we've talked about before, keep the gas fleet around, not for very much energy, only a very small couple percent of our annual energy generation, you know, down from the majority today, but with um, uh, with the same, if not a bit more in- installed capacity of gas uh, generators running eventually on zero carbon fuel. Now, of course, Excellent. state legislators have other priorities besides the ones we started the premise sure. discussion with. And so that's Absolutely. where the interesting trade-offs come. It's very hard to model political uh, priorities, right? And that's, and they change. I mean, we've, yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. Like 10 years ago in PJM, there was a big effort in New Jersey to subsidize new natural gas plants because right. we were never going to see a new natural gas plant built in New Jersey again. I mean, that was the debates of 2011. And here we are in 2022. That's not that long a period of time. And uh, the debate has entirely changed. Yeah, that's right. And, and we couldn't, we don't know what the state, you know, preferences are either. Um, what we do know is what current laws look like, um, yep. you know, which do primarily support, you know, three things, right? In, in the current state, it's the existing nuclear fleet, which has been maintained through 2030 by the Zero Emissions Certificates Program, or ZEX. That costs us about, for context, about $300 million per year. And that's enough to get about 37% of current electricity from the existing nuclear plants, carbon-free power. So that's about $8.1 million per percentage point of our current electricity demand, to kind of put that in context. The other thing we do is uh, support offshore wind. And we've started to see the first procurements um, happen uh, for uh, the OREX or the offshore renewable energy credits, um, you know, prices and the, the, set, the subsidies come in for that. The OREC price itself is not the same as the long-term levelized costs because they get paid up front and they don't go over the life of the project. So uh, we estimate that the, the subsidy is about $40 to $60 per megawatt hour. 
for the initial contracts uh, for offshore wind. That aligns pretty well with our modeling, which found an estimate of about $40 per megawatt hour required to get the offshore wind built between now and 2030. Uh, and so if you build that out, it costs about $32.5 million per percentage point of clean electricity we get, again, versus $8.1 million for the nuclear plants. And then we have the existing you know, supports, which are starting to phase out for distributed solar, the, particularly the carve out in the state RPS policy, which created the SREC program or solar renewable energy credits. We're now in this transitional phase of TRECs or transmissional renewable energy credits uh, that will phase out over the next few years. But as of 2019, we were paying about $671 million for the SREC program, which got us 4.7% of our generation from distributed solar. So that works out to about $142 million per percentage point of clean electricity. So you can see kind of where the current policy supports lie. I mean, they're weighted towards the more expensive stuff in general, especially the new stuff we're building, right, is distributed solar and offshore wind, which is just you know much more expensive. I should say we also do have the, the class one RPS that requires uh, us to get 15% of our generation in, as of 2019 from anywhere in PJM from a wind or solar or other, you know, qualifying renewable energy facility. We spent $86 million on that in 2019. So that's 5.7 million per one percentage point. Um, so that's the cheapest. And again, all that aligns, what we're currently spending, all of the, the prioritization there aligns with the relative cost of things in our modeling as well. Over time, everything gets a little cheaper, except for the existing nukes that maybe get a little more expensive to maintain over time. But that relative ranking of, you know, imported clean electricity, class one recs being cheapest, Nuclear being next, we don't have any utility scale solar really in the state yet, but if you if we did, uh, we're, we have supported it with the new state solar legislation that passed last year is, is going to create the first tenders for utility scale solar. We expect that to come in a little cheaper than the nuclear program. And then you have this big jump, you know, again, by an order of magnitude up to the cost of offshore wind and distributed solar. You know, the study talks about how if more states in the region pursue parallel deep decarbonization, things will get more expensive. What happens in the inverse if states don't and they do less and the the whole sort of premise of um, being able to import more becomes infeasible? Is that a possible scenario? Did you think about that? Uh, or is, is, that just, is, is that just already physically unlikely? So that's a great question. And I think you're getting at something that I've encountered when I spoke with the state legislature, with the Senate as well, and in, in the Energy and Environment Committee, which is a, a concern that if other states aren't supportive enough, we won't have the supply of clean electricity to import into the state. Um, right. That's not how we really think about it. We sort of think about it a bit different, which is that unless states are taking a, a proactively anti-wind and solar stance, right, where you just, they're, you know, passing ordinances to say you can't build here, which is possible. I mean, we have seen that in certain parts of Iowa and Ohio and Maine. Um, so, so that would be a scenario that would make it harder for us to import from other states. But PJM is pretty big, and I don't think that would be a universal type, you know, thing where everywhere you you wouldn't be able to build. That is a potential risk, to, you know, of the import strategies. You have to you, know, you have to be able to build it somewhere, right? But I do think you know PJM is a big region. We're also reasonably well interconnected with MISO and Midcontinent ISO, and you know, near 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 parts of that to potentially bring in more power. Our our concern was the opposite, actually, not that states wouldn't be supportive of wind and solar development. It's that they would also be accelerating their progress towards deep decarbonization. That's not a concern from a climate perspective. We want to see that, right? We want sure. New Jersey and other states to be leaders that others follow. Um, but if if that does happen, then demand for clean electricity across the region goes up. And now all of a sudden, we're not the only ones trying to import that cheap solar from North Carolina. So is North Carolina and Virginia and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so the, the marginal cost of getting more clean electricity for New Jersey goes up because the best wind and solar sites start to get used up uh, in that kind of scenario. And so we did model that. That was the third policy case we looked at. It was what we call the deep decarbonization case, where every state in the region has a high electrification strategy for demand and uh, a deep decarbonization, you know, 100% carbon-free goal for electricity in line with New Jersey's goals. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it is more expensive for New Jersey to meet our goals uh, because imports are, you know, less available and where they are, they're more expensive. And that drives a bigger development of in-state resources relative to the, uh, you know, the other unconstrained stated policy case where we just assume that current state laws are, are the only thing on the books. So that, you know, deep decarbonization policy case could be consistent with, you know, 
the majority or all of the states kind of following along with state policy or with some kind of federal policy that drives everybody in the same direction. Again, you know, that that's, we don't know that's going to happen. Yeah, ideally, it would from a climate mitigation perspective, but it's, it's a possibility that we wanted to model as well so that New Jersey can anticipate that. Again, hopefully everybody does follow our lead, in which case we will want to build out more of our in-state resources. Again, mostly utility solar and then import less from, from the rest of the region because it's going to get a bit more expensive to find low-cost uh, wind and solar across PJM. Yeah. So you, you mentioned at the top of the show, you're looking at a PJM-wide analysis similar to what you did in New Jersey. I mean, I assume this is going to be one of the assumptions you're going to have to toy with in that study as well. Yeah, that one, we're basically trying to ask how rapidly can you cut emissions before electricity costs start to go up rapidly? Okay. Right? There's sort of the hockey stick that the we've hockey seen stick in some sure, of other yeah. studies, right? And so where is that hockey stick? You know, where is the bend in the, in the curve? You know, so how, how quickly can we push decarbonization over the next now eight years, even, you know, without the assumption that we're going to have a bunch of advanced technology available, right? Because that'll probably come, you know, at scale beyond 2030 to try to get us over to, to 100% carbon free. So can we get to 70, 75, 80, 85, 90% emissions reductions? How far can we go before costs start to, to elbow up? And then also what, because it's uncertain, you know, what are the biggest sensitivities that drive or uncertainties that drive that cost? You know, how, how dependent is that elbow and the, you know, the location of that elbow or how deep we can cut emissions, how dependent is how deep we can cut emissions affordably on variations in natural gas prices, which are uncertain or assumptions about how cheap wind, solar, or batteries are to develop. And so we, also look at you know low and high gas price scenarios and low and high wind, solar, and, and battery cost scenarios to see how that impacts um, the answer as well. I'm excited to share those results soon. Um, you know, spoiler is that we can go pretty darn far in PJM pretty quickly by you know retiring you know the rest of our coal fleet, uh, again preserving and expanding natural gas generation, and building a ton of wind and solar. And then the question is how quickly can we build the wind and solar? Right? Can we really meet the timeline required? So the next kind of phase of our study that will be part of the, you know, the reason we haven't released it yet, we finished the earlier work that asks where the elbow is. We're also modeling a, a variety of potential blueprints for where across the region you could build wind and solar and transmission to meet the goal. And again, there's a bunch of different ways that could be configured. So our goal is to provide a menu of, you know, here's, you know, you don't even need to choose any of these eight, but here are eight, you know, just type it that are illustrative examples of different ways in which we could build infrastructure across the region um, so that we can have a more tangible and concrete sense of what the blueprint is to get from here to there. So that we're excited to share that soon. Yep. Um, you know, again, probably out this summer um, or, you know, late spring. Awesome. Sounds like we're gonna have to book him for a future show, Rory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe also Ken Seiler at the same time to talk about uh, the interconnection queue issues. And, yeah. And- right. And how that all uh, interacts. It is our yeah. Achilles heel right now, I think. Yeah, yeah, it very much is. We, we should, I guess we should state um, for transparency purposes that this study was supported by PSEG, which yeah. owns the nuclear plants, of course. Um, sure. uh-huh. You know, that had no effect on our findings. I mean, we, we presented the results as they came out of our model, but um, it is, you know, for transparency, we should make that clear that the sure. study was sponsored by PSEG. That's understandable. Let me let me ask you this. If you were the New Jersey policy king for a day, what of these things would you do? I know academics often don't want to input their own perspectives on it, but if, if you had to make a decision based on the results, what would you do? So it's funny that you phrase it that way. I was asked that same question by a state legislator <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> I bet, um, I bet. So I've, I've got my answer fairly well primed. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, so look, again, this is my, this is, you know, Jesse Jenkins King for the day, my subjective ranking of these priorities. And by, you know, by all, all means, feel free to argue with them um, and have your own set of values. So, um, you know, this is not an academic quantitative statement. This is my value system. But, my, you know, my sense is that we do need to balance the imports with in-state resources to some degree, because you want to sustain this policy support and public support for the next three decades to drive the transition. And so delivering, you know, tangible in-state benefits of this pol- of these policies is an important goal, even if you are just doing it from a kind of a mercenary perspective that you need to maintain policy support for decarbonization, uh, even if that's your only priority, right, is deep decarbonization. Um, and so what I, you know, think we should 
be doing as a state is we should be setting a goal to transition from 2030, where we'll already be roughly 85% carbon free with the existing nuclear plants running all the way to 100% carbon free as rapidly as we think we can that, you know, the governor set the goal of 2050, we might even be able to do that faster than that, especially if we build on that, you know, existing foundation of the nuclear fleet that gets us pretty close already. We have a 50% renewable portfolio standard by 2030 in the state. And then again, about 38% of our electricity in 2019 came from the the nuclear fleet. So, you know, take some load growth into account and we're already like 85% of the way there in 2030. And so what we need is legislation that will follow that up and drive us towards 100% carbon free as rapidly as is feasible. That will steadily contract the space for natural gas in our mix reducing the environmental impacts of gas, you know, across the supply chain from, you know, upstream extraction impacts to downstream impacts on frontline communities. And then we should develop a mix of in-state solar, of utility scale solar, the most cost-effective distributed solar, which is probably not on residential rooftops, but rather relatively large, you know, megawatt scale solar farms where the economies of scale are, are decent and get you down the cost you know, curve a bit closer to the utility scale projects, but where you still can avoid interconnection requirements and development of you know, greenfield sites. And then we need to import the rest probably. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be as high as the share in our lease cost model, but it might be 30 or 40% you know, if we want to manage the rate impact. And I just want to you know, stress that it's not just the rate impact you know, from a kind of energy equity and economic development goal for the, you know, the state as a whole, keeping our businesses competitive, all of that matters. But from a decarbonization perspective, which is my, you know, central motivation, keeping electricity rates low also facilitates electrification of heating and vehicles. And we want that to be a very attractive economic prospect for people over the next three decades too. And so we do have to carefully manage the impact of our decarbonization strategy, our electricity decarbonization strategy on the cost of electricity and therefore how attractive it is to electrify and decarbonize other fossil consuming sectors like transportation and buildings. So all that kind of, I think, argues for a a blended strategy, you know, that's falls somewhere in between what we outlined in our scenarios, you know, maybe not 80% in-state, maybe a little less than that, but also not 65% imports, you know, that might be a bit extreme. Keep the nuclear fleet going as long as we can, build out utility scale solar, you know, finish the current requirements to build utility, uh, offshore wind and distributed solar. But I think take a serious look at whether we want to continue those much, much beyond the current level. Okay, Professor Jenkins, we are at the portion of the show where we just fire questions at you, like I'm sure you do with your students. (laughs) So first question for you, you did your undergrad at the University of Oregon. Have you met Phil Knight? And how many pairs of Nikes do you own? I have not met Phil Knight, and I only are wear, only own one pair of Nikes. I guess that probably makes me a bad duck. I don't know. A bad yeah. duck. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Okay. All right. You clock time at a big state school, Oregon, uh, a premier research university, and now a vanguard of the Ivy League, uh, disregarding any potential tenure-related implications. Which one do you consider <laughs> the best experience? Oh, that's really hard to say. I mean, they're all very different experiences. They've been different points in my life, so... Uh, <laughs> I, I can't really answer that. I mean, <laughs> Fair you know, it's hard to top your undergrad experience wherever it is, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, MIT was an incredible place to be a student. Um, Princeton's an incredible place to be a faculty member. I'm really uh, quite lucky to be where I am. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine uh, it seems like it's been a pretty, pretty interesting ride. Uh, your CV says you're a member of Princeton's Student Life Committee. What's the most unusual thing about student life at an Ivy League school? Well, it's been pretty weird the last couple of years because of COVID. Yeah. We, you know, we've had students, uh, you know, living in their dorm rooms alone under, you know, <laughs> COVID isolation policy, even, you know, spent a whole year abroad. I, I met one freshman in the 2021 class. Um, her and her twin sister are both on the cross country running team. And, you know, they're really excited to come here. And then they spent their entire freshman year in their bedroom in their parents' house. So oh, wow, that's yeah. made, you know, and they're here now, which is great. But that's made, uh, you know, I think the college experience very weird for, uh, you know, everybody over the last couple of years, for me as well, lecturing for, you know, three semesters from my, you know, my little office at home. So yeah, I mean, I think the, the most interesting thing about being on the student life committee has just been a window into what that experience has been like. It's not been great. <laughs> I'll say that our, you know, the, 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 the mental health impacts of COVID on the student population have been, you know, really substantial. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the bummer side of this is even in those who haven't gotten COVID, the you know, isolation and the stress and everything else has been, been really tough. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've talked about that in our show, uh, and I, I've apparently learned just the extent of my misanthropic tendencies because I'm I've been flourishing in this isolated. Uh, <laughs> hey, but I don't have to see anybody. <laughs> everyone, yeah, everyone else seems to just yeah. Be, they try being yeah. an undergrad at you know college I imagine, and losing I a imagine. year and a half of your college well, experience. That, you know, I'm sure it's tough to swallow for the parents paying the tuition bills as well, yeah. uh, having their kids <laughs> still in the basement. Okay, um, you started a blog on global warming in August. 2005 with, I have to be honest, a concerning lack of apostrophe use. By the time <laughs> it went on hiatus seven years later, it had more than 1,200 posts from a large stable of writers that expounded on topics ranging from policy to advocacy to technical details, not to mention drastically improved apostrophe use. Any <laughs> advice on how to successfully build a highly technical, energy-focused alternative media outlet for anyone in our audience who might be, I don't know, doing a podcast or something like that. <laughs> uh, I apologize for my uh, <laughs> my lack of copy editing and distinct <laughs> lack of apostrophe usage. Um, <laughs> thanks for going way back to the, the Watthead blog. I dig um, in, man. I dig in. Yeah. I, so, you know, I started that in a, uh, during a summer uh, internship at Xerox Corporation in Wilsonville, Oregon, uh, which was the closest experience to Dilbert world I've ever been in. <laughs> um, you know, it was fine. Uh, people sure. were perfectly nice, uh, but I sat in, you know, a beige cubicle and, you know, it took me about half the day to do the tasks that you assigned to an intern, you know, in the summer. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the time I spent it reading and learning about energy systems, which I had just started to get into. And so I guess my, my advice is I just, I started the blog just to say, well, if I'm learning this and I find it interesting, there's gotta be at least a couple people who would also benefit from learning what I'm learning. So why don't I try to articulate what I found? Writing and teaching are great ways to actually make sure you know what you're talking about and learn something for real. Uh, and so it was a great experience for that reason too, to just try, you know, try to explain things that I've been getting my own head around just recently. Um, so I'd say for anybody you know, who has some content expertise of some sort and, and or is, you know, doesn't, but is learning quickly, um, don't be afraid to share what you're learning or what you know. I always stress this for my graduate students. I mean, think about how rare it is to be able to spend a semester, let alone three or four years, thinking deeply about one topic. You know, very few people get to do that. And mm -hmm. so you may not be an expert on everything, but whatever it is that you've spent your thesis on or you spent your semester term project on, you probably know more than 99.8% of the world about that topic. So don't be afraid to share it with the world, right? To, to share that expertise, be humble about what you do and don't know. Um, but also don't be too uh, nervous to share your expertise with people um, because people will find it valuable. I, you know, when I started the blog, it was meant for like three of my friends in college. <laughs> and, you know, by the end of it, like you said, it had built a big following. I became a columnist at another bigger, you know, outlet. And, you know, I've since stopped writing long form, unfortunately, and now I just tweet. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I built up quite a following on Twitter as well for this, you yeah. know, with the same kind of technical mm -hmm. content and, you know, sharing what I've learned and, and what I'm finding. Sounds pretty similar to how we started the GT Power Hour, Rory. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we just sort of said, hey, you know what? Maybe we'll just uh, sit on. Somebody the will listen, right? Yeah, yeah maybe. Somebody will tune in. Maybe not. We'll see. Yeah, find we'll out. See. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did another podcast interview a couple of years ago with Dave Roberts of uh, Vox Media fame, and, and, and he's no longer there. But yeah, now at Volts.wtf, yeah. which is the, right. best, uh, <laughs> the best blog handle. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you could get a uh, .wtf. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Website, um, but yeah. Uh, so, so um, he he admitted in there that he had uh, been unnecessarily snarky with you in your initial reaction. You apparently just ignored that um, and and sort of like kept going on. You were just talking about how you kind of like uh, you know searching for and and, and uh, sharing knowledge. Which of these terms best defines how you view engaging with media? Tedious, exasperating, head scratching, treacherous or cost-effective? <laughs> That's great. Uh, I'd have to say cost-effective. Okay. I mean, it can All be right. tedious too, but uh, <laughs> no, I'll say, I mean, cost-effective. I mean, I spend a lot of my time talking to reporters and yeah. you know, podcasts and, you know, sharing things on Twitter because I think, I feel like it's part of my job. I mean, you know, I, I get the privilege of being a professor and, you know, running a research group and thinking deeply about these topics. And I think part of the obligation in exchange is to share what we know with the world, especially, you know, in, in the kind of work that I do, I mean, I'm not in the lab designing new technology like many of my colleagues are. I'm trying to study how the system as a whole is going to evolve and provide decision support for people, you know, making real world decisions. And so if I don't get out there and talk to the real world, that's not, I'm not going to be very good mm -hmm, at that. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'd say very cost effective. And I should say, you know, 
many times good research questions come out of those conversations as well, because I could have a conversation with a reporter or a you know, state legislator or a committee staffer, and they'll ask me some technical question and, you know, I'll either know the answer, you know, or some, you know, something close to the answer, you know, which means it's probably something that's fairly well understood in the academic world. Um, or I don't, which means, you know, not that no one has studied it. I'm sure there's maybe there's a paper I haven't found. I don't read everything. Um, but it's probably not as deeply understood as we would like it to be, right? Because if, you know, it was, I probably would have some sense of it given my area of expertise. And so then you get a really, that identifies a really good research question for our group to tackle because it's something that people are really asking in the real world that matters, mm -hmm. right? To current decisions now, but it's also one that has not been thoroughly answered in academia. So now you've identified one of these sort of white space topics that academics are always looking for to try to push the boundaries of knowledge. So that's what we try to do in our, you know, at Zero Lab is find questions that sit at that intersection of, you know, white space, unanswered questions in academia and answers to decisions that people need to make soon. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what motivates mm -hmm. our work. And so, you know, part of that is sharing those, what we found with as many people as we can. Yeah, this is an interesting topic because it's something that PJM has mentioned that they wrestle with at times is like getting to the comprehensive foundation of questions while at the same time getting the information out there fast enough for, for decision makers to make decisions. And, uh, it, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of opposing uh, interests. Sometimes. Yeah, and, and I should say that's, you know, I mean, a bit of a tangent. You can cut this later if you want to, but <laughs> I mean, that is a bit of a tension for an academic as well, yeah. because our typical mode of operation, right, is to, you know, do a study, submit a peer reviewed journal article, wait six to 40 months <laughs> for that process to wind its way through right, and, and, right. You know, a journal article comes out in some obscure journal behind a paywall that you know 40 of my colleagues read <laughs> right. right i mean that, that's the typical model but that doesn't work uh if you're trying to reach a broader audience than your own academic community which is you know who, who's going to read those journals yeah um, you know if you're trying to reach a decision-making audience that is making decisions now not when your paper comes out you do have to try to engage in a different way. And so this PJM or this New Jersey study is actually a good example of that, where, you know, we released this detailed study as a kind of public working paper, you know, rather than wait for a peer reviewed article to come out because it needs to be out there now. And so, you know, it does require a little bit of our own, you know, self-review. We had several folks take a look at this before we put it out there, including experts at PJM and PSEG and the BPU and others. You know, so we felt pretty confident that we're not majorly off pace here and can get the results out. But it, you know, it has not gone through rigorous academic peer review. And we were upfront mm -hmm. about that on the, you know, inside front page. Right. Um, but I think that's something that you have to do in this space if you want to have broad impact beyond your academic colleagues. And that's what motivates our work. As I mentioned, I was very clear when I was hired here that that's part of what we do. Um, and it just, it is a little bit of a different mode for academics, but I think it's one that can work. Um, bank in my tenure case on it. So we'll uh, come back in five years and we'll, we'll, I'll tell you how well it went. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last one for you. The energy transition has been criticized as having a very with us or against us tribalistic feel. And some participants have admitted to that. Do you agree? What I find so curious about the energy transition is the boosterism for individual technologies mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, against certain technologies has a very, um, you started your segment with about the 76ers as a very sports, like, you know, yeah. root for your team and, you know, just sure. the yeah. other teams. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and it's just so odd because we're talking about like power generation technologies, right? right? right. Like, right. why are you like, why are we so tribal about that? But uh, yeah. yeah. And I, that's the one I find most exhausting or exasperating because, you know, this is an enormous challenge, right? The scale of infrastructure transition that we need to accomplish is so big and it has to be done everywhere and the context differs everywhere. So to think that we're gonna only have a couple of favored technologies that really align well with your or my predilections or values or whatever, mm -hmm. is just, you know, it's not gonna get us there. That's not right. what you know, we need. And so, yeah, I think that the maybe I'm guilty of the, you're either with the energy transition as a whole or against <laughs> this kind of mentality because we gotta get this thing done. But uh, from, you know, the, the thing that really is surprising is the technology tribalism you know, they're like, no, it's solar is the best or no nuclear power is the only thing we need, you know, thorium reactors or, you know, no, it's hydrogen for everything, you know, like, yes, but none of those things also like, sure. you know, all of them and none of them, like we're not going to rely on any single solution. We need a portfolio and we need uh, not just a portfolio in every place, but a, probably a different one in each location mm -hmm. because of the different resources they have available in the different context, geographically, politically, economically, everything else. So I, 
yeah, I would encourage everybody to, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, the end goal and less focused on, you know, rallying for your own favorite uh, means or tool to get the job done. Amen. Amen. When you were on the Volts podcast, you talked about the dangers of starting a basketball team with five point guards. Yep. I forgot about that. That was great. Perfect. Yeah, that was a really good metaphor. Yep. Man, we're on a, we're on a, a theme of basketball today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basketball's you, on the brain. I mean, if you can get yeah. five Steph Curry's, maybe you can make it work. But, I, I, you know, <laughs> even then, you're, you know, you might want a power forward and a, and a center, too. I tell know. me what that technology that is. I will invest in it <laughs> yeah. today. Yeah. Okay. So now it's part of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to people who we think need it. Dr. <laughs> Jenkins, who would you want to talk to and about what? I would talk, want to talk to Senator Joe Manchin and I want, okay. to, I want to ask him what's okay. his price and how do we need it to, uh, to get a big federal bill through, uh, through, the, through the Senate. Uh, while we still have time. Glenn. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to keep on the basketball theme and encourage okay. our, our listeners to invest in the NBA playoffs this year because I think it's going to be a great playoff <laughs> right, year. Right. It's not like the NBA in the past where there's been, you know, one, maybe two dominant teams. I think it's wide open this year. going to be a lot of fun. So uh, enjoy your spring watching NBA basketball. Right. Well, guys, it's uh, it's been another fine hour on the, the GT basketball. I mean, the GT power hour. <laughs> Thank you again, Professor Jenkins, for taking the time. And of course, thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.